0: children may be dismissed for their time of worship. Please pray with me. God, in this moment, may your glory be near to us so that we may see it. Amen. So, as your youth minister... You have tasked me with um, the work of passing down the faith from generation to generation. But what exactly are we passing on? What will this generation tell to the next generation when it is their task? In Psalm 78, it says, We will tell to the coming generation the glorious deeds of the Lord and God's might and the wonders that God has done that the next generation might know them. Are we encountering God's mighty acts and glorious deeds? Would we recognize them if we even saw them? As we read in Exodus 24, Moses and Aaron and the others encountered God, and their encounter is vivid and dramatic and dynamic. For those of you who have seen Frozen, the description in Exodus isn't too far from the scenes of Elsa's ice covering the ground. The scripture writes under God's feet a pavement of sapphire stone, like the very heaven of clearness. Can you imagine blue sparkles glowing and radiant? They see God, they eat and drink in God's presence. If we put ourselves in the Israelites' place as they experience that moment, we have to remember all that they have gone through up until this moment. The escape from slavery, the days in the wilderness, the manna that saves their lives, and the long tumultuous process as they receive the laws of the covenant and they promise to follow God's commandments to love God and one another. And in this culminating moment... As God is about to write on the tablet so that it can be passed down from generation to generation, it's as if the very world is erupting with God's presence so close to them. It tells us that the glory of God settles in on the mountain as a massive cloud engulfing it in its entirety. The people tremble over the magnificence, the beauty, the very embodiment of God's presence among them, seen as a devouring fire ablaze on the summit of the mountain. Later in the New Testament, mimicking the same imagery from Exodus, Jesus ventures up on the mountain, and his face is transfigured, and it shines bright, and his clothes become dazzling white, The glory of God, that physical change that happens because of being in the presence of God, it sends the disciples to their knees in fear and awe and wonder and mystery. Fear and awe and wonder and mystery. When did it last send you to your knees? In the ancient culture of scripture and still in many other cultures today, states of altered consciousness, as they would call it, whether dreams or trances or visions, are held in high esteem, seen as signs that convey the wisdom and desires of the divine in our world. But in our culture, in our culture, the moments of mystery, moments that are unpredictable and unexplainable or emotional, Well, they're disregarded as weakness or fantasy or even mental illness. They have no place in our society, and they're often, too often, they have no place in our church. We may not see the sapphire stones or devouring fires, but let us not miss out on the glory of God. The moments of mystery that signal God's presence near to us. The moments when it feels as if the ground opens below you, when the lump forms in your throat or the fear camps out in your belly, when the emotions of a moment threaten to undo you, when hymn singing transports you to a different place, when a hug from a friend or the passing of the peace makes you whole for just one moment, Can we be people who trust and teach that the glory of God is still within us and around us, moving in ways that we cannot predict and cannot control, ways that still bring grown adults to their knees? When we talk about spiritual formation, about passing the faith on to generations, so often we depict our faith as a knowledge just to be passed down, as if it's a subject to be studied in school like science or math. And then the professionalization of Christian education, companies literally manufacture and sell kits and volumes that promise to create Christians in our congregation. And in the process, we have separated faith formation from the actual living of people's specific lives. And we describe God as if we can fully know and understand and embody and own the prophetic voice of God. When we try to pin God down or standardize the Christian journey, in so doing, we become experts and specialists, and God is merely an object for show and tell. And when you read scripture, there is nothing formulaic, or conformist, or safe about the glory of God. God is not an object to be studied, and faith is not an achievement of education. Ministry in the church is not a factory that creates bottles, regulates, sells a reproducible uniform product, churning out young people who can master the Christian faith by 18. When we proclaim the name of God as I was who I was, then the church is merely a museum or a history book or a monument to days gone by. But God is a being. God is alive and interactive and relational and boundless and unpredictable, full of mystery and awe and wonder. Ministering the church is about being a community where we bring the real moments of our lives. And from there, we ask, where is God to be found? What is God doing in our lives now? Let us be the ones who proclaim the name of God as, I will be who I will be. And the church is the people of God who wait and watch, comfortable with mystery and yearning for wonder. Let us not raise people who read Exodus and merely dismiss it because of its mystery. For in Exodus, we see the very heart of God, a God who is in a dynamic relationship with God's people, who hears the cries of those who are suffering, who does not give up until all are rescued who leads people through the wilderness of the unknown, and who creates a covenant of promise and protection and intimacy with God's people. This is the God that young people yearn to experience. Or this is the God that all people yearn to experience. Upon the recommendation from our high school girls, I just finished a book, The Fault in Our Stars, by John Green. Narrated by a 16-year-old girl, Hazel Grace, it's a teenage love story. But with a morbid twist, um, for Hazel and her great love find each other, not at school, but at a cancer support group for teenagers. And we, the readers, fall in love with Hazel with her thyroid cancer, which has metastasized to her lungs, and Augustus with his osteosarcoma. The novel chronicles the inner life of Hazel, who has an expiration date on her, for whom breathing is hard work, who despises the trite sayings passed on by healthy people to avoid the pain and mystery of dying, the pain and mystery of living, She lives with the knowledge that something in her, something grown by her own body, will take her life. A civil war inside her with a predetermined winner, as Augustus puts it. And she describes herself as a grenade. For to love her is to suffer the consequences of the explosion when cancer inevitably takes her life. The novel wrestles with the meaning of life when suffering and death are not if... But when? And did I mention that teenagers love this book? And adults love it, number one on Amazon and New York Times bestseller and headed to the big screen soon. And as I read it, I wasn't necessarily surprised that teenagers love it. My favorite definition of a teenager is one who is reflecting on life for the first time, who's experiencing really life for the first time. And as teenagers are crafting meaning in their life and wondering what their life is about, they are the ones who are most likely to give their lives to something, something that cra- uh, craves passion for them. The band that they love, the political movement that captures them, the romance that woos them, or they th- wish for it too. It draws them a love so powerful that it would be worth. The pain of loving someone who is dying, if it meant experiencing real love. It's the desire for a full body, knock you down, lay you low, all-encompassing love. And they chase after it day and night, assuming it to be found in romance or other places. But what if that desire has nothing to do about their hormones? But it's about being created as people of God, people of the living God, people of the God who has always gone to the greatest extremes, plagues and parting the Red Sea and death by the cross to help us know the extent to which God loves us. A love that no human romance or friendship or revolutionary will ever quench. And the love that we are looking for is one that shakes the mountains and leaves us trembling in wonder and mystery and awe. Can we be people who recognize that that restlessness inside of you is the place that God's glory is waiting to transfigure before you? And how do we avoid being a factory that produces an object rather than a community on journey with a dynamic God who is full of surprise and new life even now. Kenda Creasy-Dean puts it this way, in a way that's quite challenging. What if mainline Protestantism's disappointing track record with young people has not been a failure of models or educational strategies or historical cycles or institutional support, but a failure of theology? Is it possible that the problem facing youth ministry or ministry reflects all too accurately a malaise infecting mainline denominations generally, a flabby theological identity due to an absence of passion? Could it be that instead of fanning this youthful zeal into holy fire, we have more often doused it, dismissed it, or drowned it in committee meetings? The theological challenge youth pose to the culture is blunt. Are we who we say we are? Do we practice passion transformed by a love who never disappoints and live by a faith so convincing that we would stake our lives on it? Or are we just another sagging social convention like Dracula that needs young blood to survive? Some churches will try out pyrotechnics or gun giveaways, (laughs) or contemporary music, or fire and brimstone to manufacture that experience. But the church does not need to manifest the human experience for us. We are living it. To be human, to be alive, is to experience love and heartbreak, satisfaction and longing. Just this morning, we dedicated the life of a baby boy. And we asked one another, Will you teach him the stories of Jesus and sing to him the songs of faith so that in his own day and time, he can claim them as his own? Let us not miss that phrase, in his own day and time, which points to the future out before him that we do not know. In his own day and time, He will wrestle with that which has been wrestled with since Adam and Eve left the garden. He will wrestle with fear and conflict and pride and anger and love. And as he wrestles, those stories and those songs will lead him to know the way that God has been in the past so that he can find the way that God is now and dream of the ways that God will be in the future. In one of my favorite songs by Walt Wilkins, he sings, Last night a baby boy was born to a world that can be as cold and mean as it can be safe and warm. And hopefully his family will clothe him and feed him and then give him every hope and prayer because little brother, you're going to need him. How will God show up in his own day and time? How will God show up in our own day and time? If God is, I will be who I will be, what does it mean for us to pass on the faith from generation to generation? We follow in a long line of people who have done that. And just as Second Peter names, we live as people who have witnessed the glory of God and who carry those stories within us of the ways that God has shown up in powerful, life-shaking ways. Therefore, we meet people in their own day and time of darkness, not if it happens, but when it happens, in their trembling and their quaking, their loneliness and their doubt, their fear and their suffering. We tell the stories from scripture as well as the stories from our own day and time. And we light a lamp and we hold it with them and we hold the faith until they can hold it on their own. We wait anxiously and patiently for the morning when they will find out if what has been true of God in the past will be true for them in their life. That God shows up most profoundly in the darkness and changes everything with the dawn of a new resurrected day. So we, the church, we light fires and we wait expectantly for God, who is the one who will raise the dawn in your own day and time. In mystery and beyond our comprehension, let us keep our eyes open and ready to glimpse the glory of God here and now. Should today be the day that you glimpse the glory of God or want to commit to following God in mystery and awe and wonder or to join this community as we do that together? It's our tradition that you come forward as we sing our hymn to share that decision uh, with us while we sing. Now to the one who by the power at work within us is able to accomplish far more than all we ask and imagine, to God may we give our worship and our praise and our very lives. Amen.